got the right passage this time. We're going to do Matthew 12, 31 through 37. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Make a a tree good, and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings up evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Thank you for that uplifting and encouraging word that you brought us this morning. Uh, Turn up number one for me on those lights there. Illuminate. There we go. All right. Good. Okay. So, uh, yeah, this is our passage. This is what we're talking about today. I'm sure a lot of you have read this before and you're like, I'm going to keep moving. I'm not sure what to do with that passage. We're not going to keep moving. We're going to park it and we're going to talk about this. Um, And, uh, yeah, so the reasoning series, it's not this week. It's next week, I believe, if if I'm counting correctly the days. Um, I've been on vacation for two weeks, so I get confused on exactly what day it is. It was the best vacation of my life, by the way. We went to the Adirondacks, sat on the Adirondack mountains in Adirondack chairs, and stared at Adirondack lakes. And um, those chairs are actually very useful on steep slopes. That's why they were invented. So, by the way, just FYI, that was free. Um, but we, we were able to, like, put our kids in, like, cowboy camp when they rode horses and had fun. And so, like, first time in nine years, me and my wife, like, put our kids somewhere, and then we went somewhere else for a few days. And then we got there, and we turned and looked at each other, and I said, hi, my name is Tommy. She said, hi, I'm Sarah. Nice to meet you. Um, so it was, it was really literally the best vacation we've ever had. It was great. And I'm ready, I'm ready to roll. I've been pondering this, and this is great. Um, but, oh, the Hell Reasoning series. Um, so we're only doing one session on Hell, believe it or not. Um, and, yeah, that is next, next week, uh, Tuesday or Wednesday. I don't know. Um, I'm... I'm I'm half still gone. Um, but so basically what I'm going to do is this. Um, I'm going to have both a whiteboard and we're going to use the screen. And I'm going to sort of go through the history of how Christians have thought about the afterlife throughout church history. Um, I'll talk about the reformers. I'll talk about, you know, Ignatius. I'll talk about a little bit about Dante. You have to. I'll talk a little bit about uh, Plato. We're going to go pre-Christ. We're going to talk about afterlife all over the place. Um, and I'm going to talk about the three sort of main views of, of, of what hell is. We're going to talk about heaven. We're going to talk about what we should sort of, um, how, how the, the authors of scripture as they were writing, the pictures that would have been in their heads as they're writing these things. Um, and I think it'll be very helpful. Um, I'm not going to tell you exactly how to think about it. Um, I, may, I may kind of push you away from some ideas and towards some other ideas. Um, but ultimately, I'm here to inform you and give you information and say like, um, here's sort of the, the realm of orthodoxy where Christians have been for a long time. Um, so, and, uh, and we'll talk about that, and that'll be fun. So far, there's over 100 people, I think, signed up to come to that, so that will be in here now. And uh, there will be a Q&A time. People will be able to, like, text their question as we're going. I'm going to go through the whole thing while you're texting your questions in. And then, and then Sam is going to look for ones that sort of all are cohesive and that ones that maybe are things that I missed and didn't discuss. And he's going to see what the majority of questions are centered on, and he's going to ask those questions, and we're going to, we're going to go back and forth and go through it. So um, sign up for that so we know how many people are coming. There's free child care. It'll be great. 
so you can get away from your kids for a few minutes and talk about hell. I know you've wanted to do that <laughs> for a long time. Um, some might call that heaven. Just joking. Okay. Okay. Uh, I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump into this passage, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Guide our conversation this morning. Guide our thoughts. Um, fill us with uh, information. Fill us with knowledge, but also give us wisdom to apply that knowledge to where it needs to go. Um, open our eyes. Let us see things we haven't seen. Give us a new way to look at things. Give us new perspectives, new all of it. Um, thank you for this place. It is a gift to myself. It's a gift to so many of us. Um, we, uh, we look at it as, as, as grace, and we receive it gladly. Thank you. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to start right here in verse 31 and 32. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Okay, so... There are three passages in scriptures that kind of look and sound like this. Um, the other two are right here. I'm going to go through these as well. Hebrews 6, 4 through 8. Um, it says, It is impossible for those who have been once enlightened, who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. Um, and hold that thought. We're going to keep going. First John 5, it says, There is a sin that leads to death. So, um, these three passages in, in modern church history um, are regularly kind of put together to form what people tend to call um, a, a, a doctrine of, the doctrine of the unforgivable sin. Have you heard of this? Yeah. Um, a couple of people this morning were like, yes, I have. And I could just pick up on what, what they were saying. Um, so the doctrine of the unforgivable sin, and it leads to questions like, can people really get so far from God that they cannot be brought back? Is anything so terrible that can be done that, that can uh, warrant God to never be able to reconcile with you? Valid questions. Um, and some have attempted to use these, forms, uh, these verses to form this doctrine of, of unforgivable sin, which basically says that, that there are specific things that you can do which cannot be forgiven, that if you do them, it's all over for you. You may as well go off the deep end at that point. I don't know. Um, one of them is cursing the Spirit of God. One of them is, is walking away from your faith. You're not going to be able to come back. And I've heard people say this. They walked away from their faith, and they're not going to be able to come back. Why not? Well, it says right there in, in Hebrews chapter 6, plain as day. Um, and so these kinds of things, when I was a kid, they terrified me. It was literally, I had a, a youth pastor that literally said, this is the reason you don't say GD. I said, really, why? He's like, because if you say that, you're cursing the Spirit of God, and you are damned to the lake of fire forever. I was 12. Um, <laughs> terrified. I'd stub my tongue. I'd be like, mm, like, just terrified. I was going to say something wrong. Um, and I was just, there was this walking fear that there's apparently things that you can do that cannot be forgiven. And I was like, have I seen them all? Have I found them all in the Bible? What if there's more? And I would ask pastors. I would, I would try to find more. They're like, where are they? I need to know them all. <laughs> and I don't want to trip and be like, blah, oops. You know, like, and then, I'm, then it's all over. And then I was terrified. And my second thought was, hold on. So I can become like a warlord and kill thousands of people. I can commit genocide. I can do anything. I can take part in atrocities against other people, and these can all be forgiven. 
But if I curse the Spirit of God, it's all over. Really? Is that what we're saying? Is that who we think God is? Um, but there it is, right there in black and white. Like, what do we do with these kinds of things? And I don't think church leaders, oops, I hit a button. I, I, there we go. I don't think church leaders um, really, in recent memory, have, have, have helped calm the anxieties of the church. I, things like this weigh heavy on people. Um, and they, people tend to ignore genuine questions that Christians have about whether or not anyone can, in fact, ever get beyond the reach of God's mercy. And they're, last, they're left to ask themselves, have I done something wrong? And what do I do with these passages? How do I interpret them? How, what do they mean? Is this really the character of God? Uh, is, God really, is God really the kind of person that I can curse anyone else, but if I curse him, it's all over? It sounds vindictive. Um, and these are the kinds of things that lead philosophically to people to, to question and begin to deconstruct because we're not given places to work these things out, right? Usually it's just, that's what it says. The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it, right? That, that, that's how we talk. <laughs> not we, people. Um, and there's got to be some context here. What is happening? So um, what you'll find is if you read lots, if you read wide, uh, how people interpret the Bible, like in, in lots of different um, denominations and, and traditions, Christian traditions, you're going to see different things. I want to point out two. Um, one of them, I went through a couple different, you know, phases of different denominations when I was a kid. Um, I had that youth pastor that said, no, this is actually true. This is how it should be interpreted. And you should be very, very careful about what you do. Don't misstep with the things of God. Uh, the second, um, in the Reformed tradition, um, when I was in that, I was kind of taught to reform dispensationalist version. I was taught that this law had ceased, that the, the Spirit of God, uh, this is pre-resurrection, pre-Pentecost, um, big words for basically saying like that the Spirit was moving in a different way, you know, uh, different dispensations, as people would say. And uh, the, the, the Spirit of God had not yet begun to indwell people um, and had not come in a saving manner. Right, um, So there's that. There's one way of explaining it away just by simply saying that is what it meant. No longer does it mean that because that has ceased. <laughs> like the spiritual gifts, they would also say. Um, but I'm not going there today. Um, okay. Mainline Protestants will mainly say well, this is an example of ancient hyperbole, hyperbolic language, and it's everywhere through scriptures. And they'll point out a bunch of passages of scripture. Here's a few of them where this same sort of thing is said. Um, Numbers 15, it says, Whosoever acts high-handedly um, uh, shall be cut off from among the people because of, having, because of having despised the word of the Lord and broken his commandment. Such a person shall be utterly cut off. The Hebrew there is like, they're done. They're out. Um, in 1 Samuel, you have, you have this guy Eli who committed this sin. It says, The iniquity of Eli's house shall not be expiated by sacrifice or by offering, or offering forever. There's nothing we can do to cover and atone for this guy's sin. It was so terrible. He stole some stuff and hid it in his tent. Um, Isaiah 22. Surely this iniquity will not be forgiven you unless you die, says the Lord. Uh, until you die, unless you, until you die, says the Lord of hosts. So these ideas, this is grand language, big hyperbolic language. However, we know that they didn't stay this way. We know that these people, um, people were brought back in. Several times Israel is told, you're done, you're out. And then God goes and brings her back. This is how God acts. So, like, 
mainline Protestants will oftentimes point and say, this was hyperbolic language. It's how people talked back then and just explain it away like that. Um, all these are valid arguments. I'm, I'm mostly concerned with one question. It's, it's the fact that like why we're trying to explain it away. Why are they explaining it away? Why is everyone so concerned that you not take this literally? Um, because the rest of the passages, it, it seems to, they seem to say, yes, yes, read it just like that. But here, no. Why? Because it makes God seem a certain way, doesn't it? It makes God seem vindictive, angry. It makes God seem selfish. It makes God seem like if our child acted this way, we would discipline them. And it makes God seem this way. And people struggle with these ideas. And we have to be honest and say, this is kind of how, what this does to me. And so theologians get right to work making you comfortable with the passage by explaining it away and saying it doesn't mean what it says. Why? Because we're uncomfortable with it. There's even these, um, if, you read, if you read, again, really wide on this passage, you're going to see different commentaries. Um, these biblical scholars, this is an older one, two older ones, Davies and Allison, basically said this. They said, as it stands, Matthew 12, 32 has no obvious meaning and we remain stumped. I love that. I'm just moving on. And I'm out. Um, and this guy, Ulrich Lurz, um, he's the, the drummer from Metallica. He says, <laughs> he, he says, I find no explanation satisfactory. Um, <laughs> I find no explanation satisfactory. Now, okay, I'm not going to pretend that, I'm, that I figured this passage out. However, I do want to point out um, some thoughts of, of modern biblical scholars who are working with material that the reformers didn't have to work with, that modern biblical scholar that that really pre-modern biblical scholars didn't have to work with, um, things that we now know that had been forgotten in their time, access to documents and papyri and scrolls that we now have and can study and can get a little bit of understanding of what was going through the ancient writers' minds more so than we used to be able to. Okay, um, biblical scholarship moves forward. You not real, you may not realize this. I know, I know. A lot of people are out there, like atheists, saying that science is always changing. Religion never changes. That's that's bullcrap. Um, Christians are constantly doing research and adjusting where we find we were wrong in our interpretations of things. Um, it's actually true. We we are doing this regularly. Um, now, okay. So what we're going to do is we're going to jump back to, of course, ancient first century Palestinian Judaism. Um, and we need to have an understanding of how they understood the Spirit of God and what the Spirit of God did if you're really going to have a conversation about what the Spirit of God can do and whether or not you can blaspheme the Spirit of God. I wouldn't recommend it anyways. Um, but we're gonna, we, need, we need to figure out how they viewed this thing, how they would have received this. Um, someone standing there listening to Jesus talk, how would they have received this, someone talking about the Spirit of God and what you've just done and how terrible it is. A first century Jewish um, Palestinian um, Pharisee would have studied under the rabbis, and they would have had particular understandings and views of the Spirit of God that you and I do not share. Um, for instance, they, in the first century, the, early, the, the writers of Scripture did not actually have necessarily, it's debatable, but not necessarily a full Trinitarian view of God. Um, these things were sort of revealed as the canon is coming together and we can get a wide breadth of like how to understand God. Um, and we could see, oh, and the Trinity is not, the word is not in the Bible. It's, it's a word we're using to describe what we see in scriptures. Now, um, these Pharisees did not have a Trinitarian view of God. They had a specific view of the Holy Spirit that was nothing like what you understand. Again, uh, the reformers are right when they say there was no Pentecost yet. 
Um, the spirit was not necessarily acting in a, in a sort of a salvific kind of way, right? Um, so I want to I walk you through uh, basically, I mean, I could say five. I'm going to do three just to keep it moving. Three specific characteristics of the Holy Spirit in ancient Judaism that you need to understand to understand the conversation happening here. So um, the first thing that you need to understand about first century Palestinian Judaism and their understanding of the Holy Spirit is that they believe that the Spirit of God brought God's truth to people. They believe that it was the specific job of the Holy Spirit to take information from God, sitting on high above the dome of creation as they viewed it, right? Come down um, and indwell people and deliver, use them as a mouthpiece to deliver the message. Whenever you would see a king issuing a decree in the Old Testament, whenever you would see a prophet um, stand up and declare a message to the people, whenever you would see... Um, a judge rendering judgment on a people or a particular legal matter, you're always going to see something right before that. You're going to see the writer put in a little phrase that says, and the Spirit of God came upon them and they began to judge or the king spoke or the king issued a decree or the prophet spoke. Um, Here's, you know, Judges 3. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged Israel. This is in here tons of times. This is how the message of God came to the people. The Spirit of God indwelling people, using them as a mouthpiece to deliver a message. That's the first thing they understood the Spirit of God to be doing. Okay? Um, uh, here's another example here in 1 Samuel 10. When they came there to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet him, and the Spirit of God came upon him, and he prophesied among them. This is, again, this is how it worked. Tons of examples of this. Here's just two. The second thing you need to understand about the characteristics of the Holy Spirit in the mind of first century Jews Um, was that the Holy Spirit was the manifestation of God's presence. It took different forms. The first verse in the book of Hebrews um, is really interesting. If you read it in the Greek, it's fascinating. You should pull those words apart because it says, um, God has spoken through many fashions and many ways. And if you open that up, it it, it basically, um, it's, it's a word for like, that describes all kinds of works of art and all kinds of forms that things can take. Uh, a burning bush, a pillar of fire, a pillar of smoke, a dove, a earthquake, a whirlwind, a quiet whisper, um, a reanimation of some bones, a, a specific things that the Holy Spirit will sort of become. The, you have other, all kinds, of, all kinds of descriptions of ways that the Spirit of God would take form. Uh, and you would know that God is present because the Spirit kind of does something super interesting, right? Um, Exodus 40, after, the, after they finish creating the um, sort of all the furnishings and decorating the, um, the tabernacle. They have a seven-day festival, right? Um, and then at the end of the seven-day festival, it says, Then a cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So the glory of the Lord, um, God was present, they knew, because the Spirit manifested itself in the form of a giant cloud, Right? Um, so this is how they're talking about the Spirit of God. It would manifest itself in some way. Um, what else we got here? Okay, okay. so this is interesting as well. The Spirit was not known to, like in our understanding of it, to, to tab... Okay, so the, we have this language of the tabernacle here, and God moves into the tabernacle. In the New Testament, the idea is that God, the word literally, if you translate it, means God tabernacles with us. And then it says, don't you know your bodies are the temple? And the Spirit of God indwells us, and it's like a permanent home, right? So, like, it's different than their understanding. Their understanding was God would come and go as God pleased. God indwelled the king because the king was ruling as the image of God. 
God's people were always only ruled by a, a God. God. They were never really intended to have a human king, and the human king only ruled because God indwelled that king, which is why God's people and the early Christians traditionally rejected every political earthly ruler, rejected all of them, would never allow themselves to follow any earthly rulers until the time of Constantine. However, um, you have King David here. He's the king, and he has sinned, and he, and he throws himself down in front of the altar, and he lies on the ground, and he cries out, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. You know what he's saying? Don't fire me. Let me continue being king. Because as the Spirit of God leaves him, he's no longer king. Okay? But it would come and go. I think it's interesting when Christians today sing this passage. And they sing like a song, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. I'm like, you're not the king. Okay? You're not the the boss of me. And you shouldn't sing it like that. Now, um, I know they mean well. Okay. Um, So the last thing you need to understand is that the Holy Spirit was always connected with the work of creation and recreation. So it delivered delivered the message of God. It manifested the presence of God. Also, it it, it did God's work of creation and recreation. So, Genesis chapter 1. Dark body of water, Spirit of God hovering over the face of that water. Hovering over it, preparing to create going to separate, we're going to pull some land up, we're going to start planting, and we're going to start building something and working and doing something beautiful that is in itself going to grow and produce more of itself. And there's like this growth and beauty and life and newness, okay? Creation. The Spirit of God was responsible for creation. Now, Genesis, the building of the earth, seven days, mirrors the building of the temple, seven-day festival after the end of it. The Spirit of God is hovering there, over the waters, right? Now, when God tells them to build the tabernacle, this fascinating thing happens where the Spirit of God, for the very first time, comes upon a person. For the very first time. Okay? And it's right here in Exodus. Uh, it's actually not 32. I believe it's 33. Exodus 33.1. There's this guy named Bezalel. He's the first person to ever be filled with the Holy Spirit. And of course, we know he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that what? So that he can know doctrine and work out systematic theologies. Actually, no. So that he can make art. Okay? Watch this. So the Lord, see, the Lord has chosen Belalel, son of Uri, uh, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skills and ability and knowledge in all kinds of crafts. Crafts. Some scrapbookers are like, yes. To make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze. To cut and set stones. To work in wood and to engage in all kinds of artistic craftsmanship. Um, and he has given both him and Oholiab, and son of Ahisamach, if you're looking for a baby name, skilled, skilled to do all kinds of work as craftsmen, designers, embroiderers in blue and purple and scarlet. You know what that was? The blue and purple and scarlet? Okay, if you look at all these pieces, the blue and purple and scarlet is, is the curtains for the top of the tabernacle because you walk in. It's going to be like blue and purple, like a beautiful sunset. And the walls, this guy's top, uh, uh, Bezalel, is going to be crafting all kinds of wood, making it look like trees and fig trees, like they're in a garden. Like you walk in and you're suddenly in, you're, you're in the Garden of Eden, in the tabernacle, in the same way that in Genesis, the Spirit of God is there hovering and getting ready to build the Garden of Eden. It's the same story, back to back. What the, what the writers were saying is, oh, by the way, the earth, the whole thing is a temple of God. This is where God lives not somewhere else, right here, okay? This is where God's work happens. Now, um, 
So we keep moving skill to do all kinds of work. Craftsmen, designers, embroiders in blue, purple, scarlet, yarn, fine linen, and weavers, all of them master craftsmen and designers. So if you're here and you're an artist and, uh, and your parents are like, why don't you get a real job? When are you going to actually make something of yourself? And you say, look, I'm doing God's work. <laughs> this is what God intended the Spirit of God to do, and it's leading me to make art, all right? Yes, okay. Now, so these are the three things right here that, the, that are really important for our conversation that the early... First century Palestinian Jewish people and the Pharisees uh, understood about the Holy Spirit. It was vastly different than how you and I tend to talk about it. And here's the thing. This whole conversation where Jesus says, if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you're not going to be forgiven. This happens. It, it, it has textual context. Like, it's, it's in the middle of a paragraph, okay? And that paragraph, at the beginning of this story, there is a man in the synagogue that Jesus heals, that he makes whole again. And he, and, he, and he gives this guy back his life, and it's beautiful, and it brings joy. It's a recreation. It's a work of the Spirit, all right? And then Jesus kind of talks and teaches, and he's giving the message of God, right? It is obvious that good things are happening, that the Spirit of God is there, working through Jesus, being present, bodily pre- uh, present there, and the The Pharisees look at what Jesus is doing and they say, he is working by the power of Satan, evil. He's not working for God, he's working for evil. They could no longer recognize the Spirit of God right in front of their own eyes. They couldn't see it. And Jesus says, why would I be healing people and making people whole if I'm working for the devil because this is spirit work and the devil doesn't do this kind of stuff. God does this kind of stuff. And they're like, well, you know, it's the devil that's doing that. He's like, it doesn't make any sense. And Jesus is arguing. And then he tells them, what you're doing cannot be forgiven. That is the context of the conversation. Now, um, I want to read you something by William Barclay. There is in each one of us a spirit-given faculty which enables us to recognize goodness and truth when we see them. We can lose any faculty if we refuse to use it. If we shut our eyes and our ears to God's way for long enough, if we turn our backs upon the messages which God is sending us, if we prefer our own ideas to the ideas which God is seeking to put into our minds, in the end, we come to a stage when we cannot recognize God's truth and God's beauty and God's goodness when we see them. This is where the Pharisees were. They had neglected the actual message of God for so long, and they had made the message of God into what they wanted it to be, something that gave them power and prestige, something that bashed their enemies and pushed their enemies farther out instead of drawing them in. They'd become tribalists. They'd become nationalistic. They, had, they, they no longer saw actually what God was doing, and when God was standing right in front of them, being manifested, the Spirit healing all of it, they couldn't even recognize it. They were so shut off. Now, um, neuroscience in the last couple of years, not a neuroscientist at all, know this. I speak with no authority about this, but I'm quoting other people. Um, and uh, neuroscientists have, have, have done a lot of work lately. They've, they've talked now a lot about something that I've been reading about lately called neuroplasticity. It's basically the idea that, um, that how you use your brain physically changes how it looks. Um, uh, if you have neurons that are sort of firing together, like you think the same thoughts all the time, certain neurons fire together. And the more they do that, um, they're sort of, these things kind of wire together and the path, the neural pathways become easier. And basically you're making it easier for yourself to think things 
Uh, this is how habits are made. It's sort of like if you find a, uh, a deer path in a field, you know every single day that path is there because the deer follow the same path every single day. And the more they follow it, the easier it gets. And eventually, they don't even look around. They can just walk the path and eat what's there without even thinking. And this is sort of how your brain works. If you do the same thing, the more you do the same thing, the easier it gets to do that thing. And eventually, you just begin to do it by nature. You don't even have to think about it. Now, this is how habits are formed. Um, if you tend to think positive things a lot, you'll tend to become a more positive person. It'll become easier to think positive things. If you tend to gossip a lot, you'll do that more. If you tend to be judgmental and negative, you'll do that more. Um, and it's very hard to break old mindsets and old habits. If you've been deconstructing your theology at all, if you've been reading the Bible a different way than you used to, it's very, very difficult to do this. Maybe you have found. Um, so... Unlearning things is incredibly difficult because these pathways are there. Um, if you fly over certain parts of the jungles in, in Brazil, you can look down and you can see places where human beings lived a couple thousand years ago. And you can still see the paths that are there and what is left over from them. They've been there forever. These ancient civilizations. You can still see them. The, the work that they did, the roads that they traveled, it's all still there because it's very, very difficult to sort of destroy these things. And it's the same way with the brain. Once you get into a habit, it's very, very difficult to, brain, uh, to erase it because you sort of have to work like a hard drive and erase it with new pathways that go different directions. But it'll always be easy to fall back into that path. I say all this because these people in the temple had become so used to thinking the same thoughts. They'd become so used to thinking of God a specific way. And for so long, they had thought about God as as just like them, tribalistic and nationalistic and racist and exactly everything that they were, that they no longer recognized any other God. You end up with John the Baptist. He's in prison. Remember, we just talked about this a few weeks ago. Um, and John the Baptist is in prison, and he sends these disciples to Jesus because Jesus is not acting the way that John the Baptist expected him to act. And he says, are you really the Messiah, or should we be looking for someone else? The reason he's doing this is because he's become used to looking at God in one particular way, and Jesus, the incarnation of God, did not meet that mold. Okay? This is where these Pharisees are. They, um, wait, I'm so far off my notes. Uh, these Pharisees had become so ingrained in their way of understanding God that when they encountered Jesus, they couldn't, they couldn't recognize the work of the presence of God right there in front of them. When you hear Christians today bashing things that are obviously good to do, things that are loving, things that are godly, things that are the things that Jesus would be doing today, and you see Christians bashing these things that other Christians are doing, this is where they are. They have become like the Pharisees. They have become so ingrained in their own image of God, and they have separated whatever they call their Christianity, their evangelicalism, whatever it is, they have separated from actual Christianity. And they now no longer recognize Christianity, and they call it this thing over here. It's some other thing. And they no longer recognize God when God is working around them. And you see, um, you see Christians all the time standing against things that are godly things on both sides of every aisle. You see Christians standing against, um, against uh, saving the lives of men on death row. You see Christians standing against um, saving the lives of the unborn. You see Christians standing against, um, war, uh, against stopping wars. You see Christians standing, uh, standing against... Um, people who are stopping the oppression of, 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 of the poor and minorities, oppressed peoples in general. And you see Christians look at them and you say, you shouldn't be doing that. That's not what Christians should be focused on. Instead, we should be focused on just waiting it out and flying away 
into some disembodied soul ending while the earth burns, all right? It's the happiest ending we could come up with. Um, this is not Christianity, by the way. That literally, we're going to talk a little bit about this in the hell series, in the hell session. That is Plato, the Gnostics. Like that, that's what that is. God's work was intended to be here. God has every intention of bringing justice and peace into this world, the reconciling of this world to himself, to recreate it anew. This is what the Spirit of God does. This is exactly what the first century Jewish followers of Christ believed that God was going to do. And so, Jesus is speaking to these Pharisees. He is obviously doing good things, obviously doing the work of the Spirit, and they accuse him of working for the devil. And Jesus says, what you are doing is blasphemy against the Spirit, and it is unforgivable. You will not be forgiven. And so that brings us back to the question, why? Why is that unforgivable? Um, it's a really, I'm just going to let N.T. Wright take this one. Okay. It's not just that you won't be forgiven. You can't be. Because you have just cut off the very channel along which forgiveness would come. Once you declare that the only remaining bottle of water is poison, you condemn yourself to dying of thirst. It is exactly what is happening here. It's, if you cannot recognize something good when you see it, if you can no longer recognize something bad when it is staring you in the face, then you cannot desire the things of God and therefore you, you will never inherit the kingdom of God which is happening all around you, which you can take part in now, but you can't recognize it. I think modern evangelicalism is struggling with recognizing good and evil. I think that's where we've come. And I think it's a dangerous time. I think Christians throughout history have been a beacon of light and hope in this world. I think we're losing that. And I think the reason we're losing that is because we have quenched the spirit. We sang about that this morning. We have quenched the spirit of God within us. And we no longer, we have pushed it aside and said, that's not what I want. So that's not what God wants. And we tend to read the Bible this way. And we see something we don't like that causes us to do something. And then we say, yeah, but he didn't really mean that. Meant it. You may not understand it. But the Spirit of God is, is present and is working. And many of us are working against it in various ways. And many of us are taking part in it in various ways. And the trick is to find the places where you are working against God and repent. Always course correcting. Always bringing it to the surface and being honest and saying, here it is. Okay. The rest of the passage we need to look at real quickly because... Because I know, we're long. Um, it deals with the rest of this. He says this. He says, you brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things uh, out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that every idle word which men shall speak, of that word shall they render account in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Okay. Let's break this down real fast. The, the question over, hanging over this paragraph, the question he's trying to answer is, how do you know? How do you know yourself? It's very difficult to know ourselves. 
Are we aligned with the things of the kingdom of God? Or are we aligned against them? If you're inspecting your soul, what am I looking for? How do I find this thing? Um, Jesus here gives you a compass, if you will. He says, your idle words are your compass. Um, he says, you will stand judgment based upon, basically, the, the idle words coming out of your mouth. He says, so basically, you want to inspect these things. Now, we have to understand what idle words means. Um, so idle is the word aragos. Everyone say aragos. Well done. Okay. Um, so ergon is the word deed. If you put a prefix in front of it, the A, uh, it, it means without. It's without deed. So it's a word, if you read ancient literature and you find this word, sometimes it's used to describe um, a, a, a field that is just being let to lie fallow. They're not planting anything right now. Or a tree that is out of season and not growing anything. Or um, one use was like a, a person who had a lot of money who was not investing or doing any work with it. They were just, just kind of hanging out. Right. Um, so... That's how the word was used in the ancient world. Um, it basically, so there's two kinds of words that you have, right? Uh, there's two different reasons you talk. When you go to work or you are like representing yourself on social media, oftentimes when you are talking, you are managing your identity for people. You are trying to make your business look great. You're putting on your best sort of uh, presentation. The words that you say are purposeful. They are meant to convey that you can trust me. We can do business. And you are managing what you're doing. You're growing something. These words have purpose. And then there are other kinds of words which are not that. They're just idle, right? You're just hanging out. And you got a buddy and you just can be honest. Or you're married and you're driving in the car and you're just having a conversation. And you're just kind of talking. Or, um, like, have you ever had to text somebody? The night after, like a birthday party, you had a couple drinks, and you say, hey, I'm really sorry about what I said. And if you were being honest, you would say, I was being honest. I was being honest when I said that. <laughs> but you're not going to say that. I didn't mean it is what you're going to say. Because now you're managing your image, right? That's not idle words. Idle words is what actually you said. It's the things that were in there that you just said. They, you're full of them, and you kind of bleh, just let it out. You just said it, right? Jesus says, okay, when you're not trying to manage how people look at you, when you're just talking, you're just idle, you're just being yourself, you're just letting loose, how do you talk? It's a good indicator of what's going on inside of you. When you are just driving down the road with your spouse um, or your friend, whatever, uh, and you're, just, you're talking about people, what is that talk? Is it gossip? Is it judgmental? Are you a bit racist? Are you sexist? Are you commenting on people around you? What is that talk? How is it? Do you, do you have to change it? Is, it? is it a locker room talk? Do you have to change it when people are listening? If you say some things in one room and you go into another room, do you suddenly have to talk different? Um, these are indicators of, of what's going on inside of you and the pathways that you are building and where you are going. Um, are, are your words building people up inside of you? Like, it, it, when, you, when you talk about the world around you, um, do you tend to look for good in people and you say, this person is just salt of the earth. They're great. Here's what they did. And are you uplifting? If those people aren't around, you're just uplifting anyway. You're thankful for the people around you. You understand what is important, family, friend. You, you're, you're thankful and you're receiving it and you're, you're talking about this. Or are you judgmental? Are you kind of a jerk? Are you greedy? Are you upset with the people around you and you're just venting? 
Jesus says, these idle words that you're talking, they're a great compass, and you can look at them, and you can kind of see the projection of your life, because out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth is going to speak. He says, these idle words can oftentimes reveal to you whether or not you are actually recognizing the Spirit of God moving all around you. Because believe it or not, these people that you were talking about are made in the image of God, and they were put here for a purpose. They were put into your life, specifically for a purpose for you, um, to bend you towards the will of God in some way or to reveal to you the ways in which you are not bent towards God. These idle words are incredibly important. They speak of the trajectory of your life. Are your intentions in your casual talk to light the way for others or for yourself? Are you building people up or are you tearing them down? Are you, are you nourishing people or are you poisoning the world with more gossip and prejudice and judgment and tribalism and classism and nationalism and racism and sexism? Uh, what is your idle talk? These things are, are indicators of your long-term trajectory in life. Um, every moment you are wearing a path and making it easier to walk. Every conversation you are trampling down a little bit of grass. Your neurons are firing together. You are making, uh, you are in every moment determining the things you are going to do in the future. The path you will move down. And you may not realize it, but five years from now when you've walked that path for a while, you'll stop and look back and say, how in the world did I become such a negative, angry, thoughtless person? Most people aren't surprised when their marriage falls apart. Most people. Because one, one person or the other was walking a path that they never should have been walking. They were spending no time practicing the spiritual disciplines, the things that Christians have historically always done until very recent um, church history. Daily fasting and, and prayer and meditation and, and celebration and generosity, all of these things meant to... To, to guide your soul towards the things of God, towards the kingdom of God around you. You can, easy, okay, you can either build up your soul or you can tear it down and destroy it, but only one of these things can be done by accident. It is intentional, the person you are becoming, if you want to make it better. Otherwise, if you're just hanging out, you know, idle talk, you're not paying attention, you're not awake to the spirit around you, you are building a path towards destruction. You are building a path towards a day when you will no longer even recognize the things of God. We all know these people. And they break our hearts. And so we gather every week. We come back together and we lay it on the table and we try to be honest. And we take communion. Why don't we do that now? Our communion servers, why don't you go and get the elements and spread them around the room? Um, communion is one of those things that we do that reminds us every single week. It's a daily, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a weekly sort of ritual and meal that reminds us. Do we have communion servers? Oh, no, we got some random people standing up. Yeah, I'm, I'm a community service today. Thank you. I appreciate it. Awesome. Cool. Um, so, um, communion. Body broken for you. The blood of Christ spilled for you. It is the great reminder of how salvation and healing enters into the world. Okay? This is how this works. And so we ritually, we come and we remember, uh, it doesn't matter how holy you are, how great you've been, your spiritual performance has been excellent, or how much of a failure you perceive yourself to be. We come to the table, we all receive the same thing, the grace of God, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ poured out for you. We receive it, we take it. It's a gift. Some places call it the Eucharist. You is, is the prefix for good. Charis is the word for gift. It's the good gift of God. And we receive it. And so we're going to do that now. Take some time in prayer. We do this every single week. I want to invite all of you to take communion with us. You simply come up, take a piece of bread, rip it off, dip it in the wine, eat it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Guide us. Give us peace. Go before us. Lead the path. Call us to follow you. In your name.
Amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus.